happens. Well, once again, I do find myself in the enviable position of bringing you the transition between two sermon series. I actually enjoy doing this because Alex and I talk a lot together and I get to change my mind at the last minute without telling him. But I didn't do that this time. I just wanted to see the beads of sweat. All right. Well, over the past four weeks, uh, Pastor Alex has been reviewing our purpose and strategy statements, uh, which should be being displayed right about now. There you go. Thank you, Debbie. Of course, uh, our purpose is that we are working together to restore hope to all people. And our strategy is that we're doing it by developing Jesus followers who worship, love, and connect. When we use these three words, worship, love, connect, uh, we are outlining what we believe and understand to be the actions of a Jesus follower. This, we are, uh, by doing this, we are identifying what we understand to be normal for followers of Jesus. It's just what we do. It's what Jesus' followers do. We worship God. We love one another. We connect with those who are outside of the church. This whole series of messages began on August 23rd. Uh, Back at that time, Pastor Alex identified uh, the key terms in our purpose and strategy statements. He said that hope needed to be restored because creation's stewards, that is, people, rebelled against creation's God, resulting in broken relationships. Broken relationships between people and God, broken relationship between people and creation, the relationships between family members, even within families, um, relationships between nationalities, between races, and within families, all broken, all damaged, because the stewards of creation rebelled against creation's God. Even the relationships, believe it or not, between neighbors can be affected by this. Well, of these key relationships, the one that can affect the other relationships in life is the relationship between a person and God. Just makes sense. Pastor Alex went on to say that this is this that he went on to say that hope, hope is restored when Jesus began to bring the kingdom to bear on the world. When the kingdom touches the brokenness of the world, things happen, he said. The kingdom of God dispels the darkness. 
the darkness that was brought into this world when creation's stewards rebelled against God. And it restores our individual relationships with God through Jesus. That is the basic idea of how we, that is your pastors and elders, how we understand our, that is Alliance Bible Church's purpose as a church. That's our purpose as a church. To bring the kingdom of God to bear upon relationships and fix the brokenness, restore hope. Then, of course, in order to fulfill our purpose, we, your pastors and elders, had to figure out and develop a strategy that could guide us as a church. Pastor Alex described that really well. Our strategy is to develop Jesus followers who worship, love, and connect. This is basically our restatement of the Great Commission. Found in Matthew 28, verse 19, the Great Commission says, Go make disciples. We just updated the term make disciples, and we substitute for it develop Jesus followers. Why? Because the word disciple just has all kinds of baggage in our culture, and we wanted to choose a word that's a little bit, or a phrase that's a little bit less ambiguous. So when we say that we are developing Jesus followers, we're really saying, we're telling you that uh, we are obeying Jesus' command to make disciples. So what does it mean to make disciples? I mean, what does it mean to develop Jesus' followers? See, it's going to take me a while to get used to the new terminology. So if it takes you a while, that's okay. But we are developing Jesus' followers. What does it mean to develop Jesus' followers? It means we help one another pursue our relationship with Jesus. All of this is just kind of summary of what Pastor Alex has been talking about so far. And we do that, we pursue our relationship with Jesus, we do that by worshiping God together, loving one another in community, and as we do those two things, our hope is restored, but Jesus wasn't satisfied with that. He commanded, he told us to move outside of our own fellowship and connect with our neighbors. He actually said that we should do that until it's extended to all the nations. Wow, that's a big deal. That's a big job. Fortunately, God is helping us. And as he helps us and as we reach out even to all the nations, hope is restored to others as Jesus' followers worship God, love one another in community through serving one another, and connect with those who do not yet know Jesus. And we do that with the expectation that God will, we don't have to, 
We don't bring this into the conversation. We just bring our expectation that God will invite some into relationship with him, into fellowship with us, and that they will do the same thing, reach their neighbors, and perpetuate that whole thing on and on and on until the Lord returns. Then, of course, uh, we went on in the following messages, or Pastor Alex went on in the last three messages, to really talk about the details about worshiping, loving, and connecting. So where do we go from here? This is the transition part. Well, in the weeks ahead, we're going to talk a lot more about connecting in order to restore hope. Which brings us to this morning and the fact that I get to do basically whatever I want, but I've opted, I've opted to go with the things that Alex and I have been talking about. Uh, and we've talked about hope a lot. However, we've talked about it here without actually getting down to identifying what hope itself is. And so if we are going to restore hope to those in a broken world who have no hope, we have to know what hope is. And that's where we stand this morning. That's a big job. It's a big job to tear down the old things that have been built up and rebuild them with true things that God has identified. So we need God's guidance in doing this. So let me just pray for us for a moment. Heavenly Father, uh, we know that you love people. That's why you sent Jesus into the world to save us. And as we take the hope that that gives us and bring it to a broken world, we recognize right away it's a job too big for us. And so we pray, I pray, I'm asking you now, Holy Spirit, teach us the things you want us to know about hope this morning. And go with us, even before us, as we reach out to our neighbors with a new understanding of what it means to restore hope. Do this, we ask, because we believe it is what Jesus would ask right now, were he here. And he is. So we ask in his name. Amen. Well, as I usually do, I, uh, when I'm considering an idea, I uh, first went to the Bible to see if God had anything to say about it. And uh, he does. He has a lot to say about hope. In fact, I discovered he has an awful lot to say about hope. But fortunately, he follows this pattern when it comes to hope. And we can identify that pattern. Um, so 
I found one particular passage that really speaks to our situation in America in 2020. And uh, I, I just, because it speaks to our situation and it kind of envelops all that God has to say about hope, I just wanted to bring it here this morning. That passage is 1 Peter 3, 15, which says this, uh, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Now, Peter was speaking to Christians in a hostile environment. Okay, by this time in the first century, uh, there was persecution going on. It was hard for Christians to find a place to be, to exercise their faith without really falling under condemnation and getting into dangerous situations. Well, today, we face some of those exact challenges. In our culture and society, Christians are more and more being seen as those who have persecuted others in the past or pressed our privileges for our own benefits. We are seeing that people are suspicious of us even before they get to know us. It's enough to wear the name Jesus follower and people become suspicious of us. So if that's the case, how do we do this? How do we talk to this same suspicious and sometimes violently opposed to us world about hope? As if they thought we might have something worth saying and worth them listening to. Because off the top, they don't think that we have anything worth saying or anything that they want to listen to. So how does the world see hope? We have to identify that. We have to understand it. Otherwise, we get into a situation where we don't know who we're talking to. So how does the world see hope? Well, one of the things I also do regularly is go to Google and find out what the world's thinking. Um, so I went to Google so that I can get an idea of what people think hope is. And this is what I found, and this is really interesting. Uh, Google's dictionary said that hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Okay, Merriam-Webster said that hope is to cherish a desire with anticipation. And it is a desire accompanied by expectation or belief in fulfillment. Wikipedia said that hope is an optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes. Dictionary.com said that hope is a feeling that what is wanted can be had or the events will turn out for the best. Macmillan Dictionary says that hope is 
to want or expect something to happen or to be true. So I took these ideas and I cobbled them together into an acrostic, and I think it relates the way that we use the word hope in our society. And uh, it's, it's right there. Um, hope in our society means happy outcomes and positive expectations. Now, the order there is kind of reversed because first you have the expectation and then you wish that you have a positive outcome. But that's what the world thinks of, those two things. Happy outcomes and positive expectations. That's what the world thinks hope is. And uh, the fact of the matter is, um, I just lost my place. The fact of the matter is that that's really kind of baseless thinking. What these tend to have in common, all of these definitions from the world about what hope is, what these tend to have in common is that they all carry the idea that hope is somehow separated from reason. Now, the world will tell you faith is separated from reason, but that's another discussion for another day. These ideas somehow separate hope from reason. Hope is a desire, a feeling, a, a state of mind, a desire, an expectation. Nothing concrete there. To be fair, all, uh, though, um, Dictionary.com's definition of hope as a noun called it a feeling. Their definition of hope as a verb did go as far as to say, at least when you combine it with some kind of object, that uh, hope means to look forward to with desire and, they said, reasonable confidence. So if you attach your hope to an object, it ought to be something that you think can reasonably occur. So, uh, so at least they have it partially correct. But even though that seems to be a little better, the overwhelming concept of hope in our, in our society and culture seems to remove reason from the equation. It seems that hope means to be happy or optimistic with no good reason for either happiness or optimism. That's how the world sees hope and presents it. So, number two, how does the Bible present hope? Well, in our passage in First Peter, when Peter urges us to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us, he has a particular context. Peter's not just a person plopped down into history with no background. Peter has a context. What is his thinking, for example? What is his context? When someone asks, why are you hopeful? Can we give a reason other than, I have a feeling, I have an expectation? Can we have a context? Can we have a reason? So when I looked through Scripture, asking that question, what does Scripture say about hope? This is what I found. That Scripture is full of examples of people who have 
a reason to talk about hope. All right, take Naomi, for example, in Ruth chapter 12. In Ruth chapter 12, we see, I'm, I'm sorry, Ruth chapter 1, verse 12, what we see is that Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, all three women, have lost their husbands. Naomi, the mother-in-law, encourages her two daughters-in-law, go away, leave me and find husbands for yourself. Naomi says this, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, and then she goes on. She goes on to say, if I have hope that I might get a husband and actually have more children, will you wait around until they're fully grown? Don't do that. Move on. So Naomi reflected this, that she put hope together with a reasonable expectation. The reasonable expectation would be, I can't make sons for you unless I have a husband. And then she expressed where reasonableness ends. I can't expect you to wait until they're fully grown before you marry them. So go, find husbands for yourself. So Naomi, in Ruth 1, 12 and 13, actually expressed that hope is based on some reasonable set of circumstances. There's another example, 1 Chronicles 29.15. Here's the setting. David is the king, but he has grown old and infirm. He's in his last days. So what does he do? He takes inventories of, uh, inventory of the ruling families of Israel. He brings them all together. He brings out his son, Solomon, and says, God has told me Solomon's going to be the king. So I want you to support him. And by the way, I gave him plans to build a temple. And look, I've got all this stuff I've been saving up all my life to contribute to the building of the temple. Well, the... Families of the leaders of Israel were so moved by this that they started piling things on the pile. They just started giving things. They said, here, take this. Use it to build the temple. Use it to build a house for God. And, uh, and David, in response, was so moved that he said something. He started to pray. And in his prayer, he came to this point. He said to God, we are sojourners before you. We are tenants here. We have nothing permanent, he's saying. As all our fathers were tenants. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope, he says. However, in the context... He goes on to say exactly what he means by there is no hope. He says, O Lord our God, 
all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it's all from your hand. And it's yours anyway. So what is it David is saying we have no hope about? God, we're strangers here. We're just tenants. We're renters here on this land. We don't have anything to contribute to build a temple for your name unless you give it to us. So David's hope is in God's provision. We can build this temple. Solomon, do it. But it's all based on God's provision. So that's where David hope lies. David's hope lies. So either there's a good natural reason to be hopeful, like Naomi had, or there has to be a good supernatural reason to be hopeful, like David had. And actually, this is a really good biblical definition of what hope is. So let me give it to you. Hope is confidence that God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, will keep his promise tomorrow just as he kept it yesterday. Hope is confidence that God will keep his promise tomorrow just as he kept it yesterday. And of course, the crucible is today. Because we don't always see what God is doing. And we don't always understand how it will play out. And so we have to trust him. But if God is there, if he has made a promise, if he is able to keep it, if he's willing to keep it, if he has shown us in the past that he does keep it, we can have a reasonable expectation that he will go on doing that because he's also proved himself to be unchanging. So there you have it. You have the world's view of hope. It's based on feelings, desires. You have the biblical view of hope. It's based on who God is and what he has done. So, number three, what is it that Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 3? If hope is confidence that God will keep his promise, which promise is Peter talking about? What's he referring to? Uh, what is the thing that we are supposed to bear testimony about as God's promise? Well, Peter uses the word hope four times in 1 Peter. And he's simply looking those things up well, gives us a really good understanding of what Peter's talking about. So, here it is. In 1 Peter 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. A living hope. Hope, a reasonable living expectation. Uh, but what is that hope based upon? For Peter, it's a promise of God. It's directly 
from the mouth of Jesus that Peter has this promise. For in Matthew 25, 34, Jesus said this, and he's, he's teaching a parable, but he says these words, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And again, it was Jesus who appeared to Saul. Remember Saul became Paul? Jesus appeared to Saul and declared something. He said something to him. He said, I will save you from the Jews and the Gentiles, because they both wanted him dead. The ones who seek your life, for I have appointed you. And he says this. Jesus says this right to Saul. I have appointed you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So now we're starting to see a pattern develop. Peter is talking about an inheritance. Now inheritance is thing that comes after, right? So what, when Peter's speaking, he is still looking for future fulfillment of receiving that inheritance, which is a good thing because that kind of supports the whole concept that hope is confidence that God, who kept his word in the past, will keep it in the future. So Peter's looking for an inheritance in his future. Well, in Ephesians 1.11, this time Saul, it was actually Paul, and he wrote this down, um, he writes these words. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So Peter's expectation of inheritance is built on the words of Jesus, in a parable, later words of Jesus to Paul, later words that Jesus taught Paul, and again in Colossians 1.12, Paul says this, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 1.12. Again, the author of the book of Hebrews, we don't know who that was, but this author says in Hebrews 8.15, this is the reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So we see this pattern built in the New Testament of a promised inheritance for those who have faith in Jesus. And Peter is making reference to that. Well, okay, so maybe, as some will say, the New Testament is kind of a conspiracy thing going on there. And this is really not what God ever intended until Jesus came along. Well, fortunately, we have something from the Old Testament to show us that God had planned ahead. So what about the Old Testament? Peter was a Jew, right? He was a Jew who had the whole of the history of the nation of Israel as his context, 
What was his context? He's a Jew. He had the whole nation, uh, the whole history of the nation of Israel as his context. The psalmist writes in Psalm 16 and verse 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. There are also Psalms 23, 26, 72. They all have promises from God about an inheritance. Um, so Peter, and I just let you know what those Psalms are because I don't want to take forever. Uh, I told you I wouldn't go too long, right? So um, Peter is immediately able to identify a reason to have hope. And he takes that reason from his context, from the hope of Israel, from the history of Israel, from what Jesus said when Peter was there, to what Jesus said to Paul, to what is written in the book of Hebrews by that author, also guided by the Holy Spirit. So Peter has this context for hope. Hope is about an inheritance, an inheritance we have not yet received. And he says this, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So, this is where it becomes a little dicey. Because when we connect with our neighbors out there, they're going to ask us eventually a reason to be hopeful. Especially if we tell them, chin up. Things are good. It's not as bad as you think. What do you mean it's not as bad as I think? Look around you. Hey, there's an inheritance coming. That's when they just kind of wig out and think, you're an idiot. <clears throat> so we have to be able to show them, I'm not an idiot. I actually have a reasonable expectation that God will fulfill his promise. And that inheritance, that's a promise. So Peter is referring to this hope that at the end of all things, when the Messiah returns from his Jewish background, when the Messiah returns, that he will deliver the nation. And all the eternal blessings that were based on the promise of God will come about. So... Continued. What is Peter's context? The answer. Primarily, Peter was a Jewish fisherman in Judea under Roman occupation in the first century. What could be worse than that? He had the law. He had the prophets. He had the Psalms. He had history. He had an expectation that God would one day undo all the injustices done to his people throughout the centuries. Peter had the promise of God to Abraham that God would one day sit on the throne of Israel, personally dwell among his people and restore peace 
justice, equity, righteousness to all people everywhere forever. Amen. Amen. Now listen, that's an inheritance. Okay? And we have seen already that that inheritance is prepared for those who have their faith in Christ. We put, we put our trust in Jesus. Why? Because he's that king. He's that coming king who will set it right. He's got the power. He's got the authority. And unfortunately for us, from our narrow little perspective, he's got the timing. We just want it now, right? I mean, but he's got the timing. Um, okay. Well, there's this hope that is real. And we can talk to people today about justice. If we understand what justice is from Jesus' perspective. Because we have the one who is just and the justifier of all. We can talk about justice. We can talk about law. We can talk about equity. We can talk about forgiveness. We can talk about enduring peace. Now are these things that give hope? Absolutely, especially when you have a reasonable expectation that they will come about. So, yeah, there's this whole thing about inheritance, and it's sometime in the future, but you know what? We have our entry. We have the seal. We have the promise of the redemption. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have all these hopes realized now. And we have exactly the same thing Peter had. We have a story to tell of God's faithfulness and all those things. Our purpose is to restore hope to all people, but what hope and on what basis? That's it. According to Peter, our hope is that the future will be what God promised. But that's based on a promise by someone who is faithful. Those promises and God's faithfulness were played out in history through God's dealing with people. Those dealings were always carried out through people. Get it? Moses. God played out caring for his people through Moses when he gave the law. It was carried out through Moses. It was carried out through the judges. It was carried out through the prophets, the kings, the priests. And today he is carrying out his dealings with people through other people. But people is us. God is carrying out his dealings with people through us, his priests. We alone have hope based on God's promises. Dare I say it? Everybody else has a hope of certain expectation of judgment. Ooh, that's not good. So when the world gets ugly, we have hope. When the world gets ugly, when disease hits, COVID-19, cancer, all other kinds of 
just debilitating and deadly diseases. When disease hits, when natural disasters throw the world into chaos, hurricanes, earthquakes, when, when war arrives, when injustice prevails, when hatred seems to rule the day, when lawlessness rises and natural affection disappears, when peace is rare and violence spreads like cancer, when all civility breaks down and it seems that things can't possibly get worse, that is when we have to remember our hope. Remember, our hope is based on God's promise. And one day He will set things right. Remember, he holds us, and that he promised he is faithful. And it is our calling, our duty, our commission, our purpose to live in a way that reveals the hope of his calling to a broken world. But how do we do that? In the weeks ahead, we will explore that very question. For now, I want to urge you to pray. Pray through God's calling. Pray through His commission and commandment to us. Pray through it. Pray through God's purpose for us. And look around. Just look around. See your neighbors. I know, you've seen them before, but no. Look at them. See them. Pay attention to them. See your neighbors. And, and when you're looking right at your neighbor, from your kitchen window, from your garage door, from the backyard porch, whatever, when you see your neighbor, when you're looking right at your neighbor, ask God right then, show me how to connect. That's it. That's the so what. Depend on God because hope depends on a God who is faithful. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, there were so many examples of where you have provided where you have proven yourself faithful and trustworthy and the source and the healer and the provider and the protector. You proved yourself to be faithful and true and righteous and just and holy. So may we, as Peter told us, May we sanctify Christ in our hearts. And look forward to the hope that you've prepared for us. The inheritance 
that you promised to those who are justified by faith in Jesus. Amen.